morning, we come as always asking for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for your gracious instruction as we open up scripture. We ask that you would teach us, show us what we need to know, and then also how to best apply your truth to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the Olympics, traditionally at least, the podium where the athletes go to receive their medals is tiered. The first place position is in the center of the podium. This is the highest point of the podium. This is where the gold medalist stands. The second place position is to the right of the first place. This is where the silver medalist stands, and it's a little bit lower than the first place position. And then finally, the third place position is to the left of the first, and it's lower than both the first and the second. It's lowered uh, just, just a little bit under the second place position. And only one person is allowed to stand on each spot. Now, we know that there are a lot of athletes that compete in the Olympics, and there are usually several athletes that compete in every single individual event, but only one is allowed to stand on the first place position. Only one person occupies the center podium at any given time. In John chapter 20, we are shown the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and John chooses to tell us about the resurrection through the eyes of Mary Magdalene and John. John himself is an eyewitness to the resurrection. Both Mary and John get to experience some resurrection firsts. Mary is uh, claiming several firsts, as we're going to see in this passage, but the big one is the first to see Jesus after the resurrection. John is the first one to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So both are able to claim some firsts. And I think Peter even claims one first in this passage. But the question we want to ask and answer in this passage is this. What do these resurrection firsts teach us? What do these resurrection firsts teach us? Let's look at John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary is going to be the first one to the tomb. And so in the opening verses, we we have this description of her reaching the tomb. We have the description of the resurrection through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. It says, now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Jesus rose on a Sunday. And this is one of the reasons why the church continues to worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. It is Sunday the first day of the week when the resurrection took place. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now we know from the other synoptic accounts, the other gospel writers tell us uh, about the resurrection from a different perspective. And when we read those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that it wasn't just Mary that went to the tomb. We know that there were other women who went with her. Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go in and anoint him. So there were other women. Even just the next verse, verse 2, it says, um, We do not know where they have laid him. So there were other women with Mary at the tomb. But John doesn't mention them. He mentions Mary. So one of the questions we have here is, Why? under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did John single out Mary Magdalene? Why why did John decide he wanted to tell the resurrection and her story and, and show us from her eyes about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why single her out? Well, Luke 8 tells us that Jesus had healed Mary Magdalene by exercising seven demons from her. Uh, Luke 8, 1 and 2 says, And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So this tells us that Mary's life before Jesus was a life where she was either physically sick or spiritually sick or both. So Mary's life before Jesus was spiritually sick, spiritually dark, and spiritually dead. And then she had an encounter with Jesus. You've heard the saying, the more Christ has done for you, the more you love Christ. Well, Mary's love for Jesus was complete. 
It was total. He had given her life and now she followed and served him with her whole life. She followed him, she attended him, she obeyed him. Jesus was everything to her. Jesus occupied the first place position on the podium of her life. That's where Jesus was to Mary. And we don't have to look far to see an example of her devotion to Jesus. John tells us she was the first one to the grave. And where was she on Friday? John tells us that too. John 19.25, standing by the cross of Jesus. So Mary was the last one at the cross, first one to the tomb. That says something. That says that, that Jesus wasn't just first in her heart, although he was. He was also first in her life. He was first place in her heart and her life. So Mary Magdalene was a, mar a woman of remarkable faith. And since John's purpose in writing the Gospel of John is so that people will believe, he chooses to highlight a woman with remarkable faith, a believing woman, Mary Magdalene. That's why he singles her out. Well, Mary saw the stone rolled away, immediately ran off to find Peter and John because they were the leaders. They were the, they were the leaders of, of the disciples. They were the inner circle of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John. And she says, they, meaning Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, whoever she thought might have taken him, have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, does that sound like she believes in the resurrection? Or does that sound like she believes that someone has disturbed Jesus' grave and taken his body? I would argue the latter. She's not believing in the resurrection yet. So although Mary receives the first for being the first one to the tomb, she does, she does not receive the first for being the first one to believe in the resurrection. For that, we need to now turn to Peter and John. Uh, they, verse 3 and 5, first to believe, Peter and John run to the tomb. Uh, John reaches the tomb first. He stoops down to look in, saw the linen cloths, but he did not go in. Now, there have been all kinds of suggestions as for why John did not go into the tomb. Some people said, well, he didn't want to defile himself. Others say, uh, no, he was afraid to go in. Uh, still others say um, he just didn't want to. But really, none of those work out because it tells us in just a few seconds later, he does go in. Verse 8 says, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. So he didn't want to defile himself, but a few seconds later it was okay. He was afraid, and then all of a sudden, a few seconds, he wasn't afraid. He didn't want to go in. Now he didn't want to go in. None of those work. I think the best explanation for why John did not go in is supported by the text itself. John waited for Peter. He waited for Peter. John may have been younger. John may have been able to run faster. So he got there first, but Peter was still the lead apostle. Peter was the one who walked on water. Peter was the one who, on behalf of the other disciples, made the confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was still first among equals when it came to the closest 11 disciples. So John waited for Peter so he could go in first. Once inside, he saw the linen burial cloth, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded neatly and set off in a different location. So we've got some evidence here. Remember, John never includes anything in John um, haphazardly. There's a reason why we have everything recorded for us in Scripture. Why give us all these details about the linen cloths, the face cloth, it's laying over here, it was folded, that type of thing. Why, why give us these details? The reason is it points to a resurrection. Does, does this description, do, do these facts of how they found the tomb, does that point to a robbery or, or a resurrection? Again, I would point to the latter. Uh, one historian has observed that the combination of spices and aloes would have stuck to the body, which would have made unwrapping the body a, a difficult and lengthy and probably messy process. So if you were a grave robber or if you were trying to get away with a crime, which it was, would you take the time to, to unwrap the whole body and then would you take the time to, to gently fold the, the face cloth and set it over here? Or would you with a partner probably say, you take one end, I'll grab the other, let's get out of here. They didn't want to be caught at the scene of the crime. So John tells us, this is what was in the empty tomb, and it points to a resurrection. It, it serves as evidence for a resurrection, not a grave robbery. And then we come to verse 8. John, upon entering the tomb, saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw the stone rolled away, he saw the empty tomb, he saw the linen strips, and he saw the face cloth folded up neatly. He saw that Jesus wasn't there, and then he believed. And this can't mean that he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, or that he believed that Jesus was the Christ, or he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Old Testament fulfillment of, of those, all those messianic prophecies because he believed all that already. He already believed that. When it says he believed, it says he believed that Jesus wasn't dead anymore. He believed that Jesus was alive. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that statement, John is the first one, the first person to ever believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, John was the first, but he was not the last. I remember uh, growing up in the fall when you could still burn leaves. Uh, I would look forward to raking all the leaves in the front yard out to the road. So we would rake them all the way across the yard, uh, scrape the sidewalk as I went over that, and then over the little boulevard, and we didn't have curb and gutter, so I just raked them out near the side of the road made this big, heaping, long pile. And when it was ready, I would take a match and I would throw it down in the middle of the pile. And it would take a couple of seconds, but then shortly after that, I would see this single slender flame poke up through the leaves. And then from that point, it, it wasn't long before, all of a sudden it just started spreading outward, ever-expanding fire that, that would consume the leaves and just burned outward, just pushed itself out into the leaf pile. The empty tomb was the dropped match. John's belief in the resurrection was the first single slender flame. But the gospel has spread outward in an ever-widening circle since that time, and there are millions of believers that are on fire for Christ. And each one 
who believes in Jesus Christ believes that he died, was, was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the grave on the third day. Every single believer believes that. And so today there's this roaring, crackling sound of, of millions of believers in Jesus Christ burning hot and believing in the resurrection. But it started with the single flame of John. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, a, is it's an essential, non-negotiable, core tenet of Christianity. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sins. It's that important. It, it serves as part of the foundation of the church and Christianity. If you take the resurrection away, everything falls down. It all collapses. That's how important the resurrection is. John saw and believed. But he's not the last one. That flame is still burning. If, if, there's, not, uh, if there's anyone here this morning who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Today could be a day of firsts for you. It could be the first day you repent of your sin and trust Jesus for your salvation. It could be the, the first day that you stand before God forgiven instead of condemned. It could be the first day you no longer have to wonder or doubt or fear where you're going to spend eternity. It could be the first day you're given a new heart, new desires, and new spiritual life in Christ. This could be your first day as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we must repent of our sin and turn to him. Repent means turn away, renounce. Uh, everything that the Bible says is sin, we are to abandon, we are to get rid of, we are to take concrete steps to eliminate from our life. Remember what the Bible says it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what we believe or think is right. It matters what the Bible says. Whatever the Bible calls sin, we don't want to have anything to do with. But Christianity, it has been said, is the only religion where we have to repent not only of our sin, but also of our good works. And what they mean by that is, not only do we acknowledge that sin is a barrier that keeps us separated from God, but they, they mean also that our trust in our own good works keeps us separated from God. And as, as someone who's coming to faith in Christ, we have to not only repent of our sin, we have to repent of thinking that we're good enough or thinking that I'm a pretty good person or I'm a good enough person. Um, I, I'm generally nice to people. I, I, I love others and, and I do good things and I think God will let me in. No. We have to repent of that, abandon that, just drop that, get it out of your head. Instead, listen to Scripture and put your trust in Christ alone. Acknowledge, I'm not good enough. I can't get to heaven on my own. There is nothing I can do that will merit my own salvation. Repent and believe. Acknowledge your need. In the, at the beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. Not those who think they're good enough, but those who acknowledge they're not good enough and who trust in Christ alone. Repent and believe. John, oh, and, and one more thing. John saw 
and belief. Today, that's not the pattern that is normative for people coming to faith. We don't see and believe. We hear and believe. We don't see. We're not going to go back to the tomb. We weren't there. John was there. That's why he saw and believed. We, we're not there. We're not going to see the empty tomb. We can't even be 100% sure where that tomb is. We've got a couple of different locations that we think we know where it might be, but we don't know for sure. The point is, we're not going to see and believe. We are going to hear and believe. And that's how God has designed it to work. He has given us his church. There are faithful churches on every continent and this planet. There are faithful churches in every single state of, of our country. And they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's when people hear and the Spirit of God works that people believe. So we are to hear and believe. We need to briefly comment on verse 9. This is sort of kind of like a parenthetical statement inserted by John. And at first glance, if you read through this the first time, it almost looks like he's saying John believed in verse 8. And then in verse 9 he's saying, oh, uh, actually never mind. Uh, honestly, what happened is none of us knew and we, we never really understood what's going on. Okay, that's not what happen what's happening. This is not a contradiction. John is not denying his belief in verse 8. He is clarifying something so that we will see the significance of his belief. He's saying, so that the reader may know up until this time, none of us understood that the scriptures taught that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. Or until now, I didn't know or understand or believe in the resurrection. None of us did. But when I saw the empty tomb and the evidence right in front of my eyes, I believed. Okay? That's what's going on there. He's not denying his belief. He's saying up until this time we had not. But at that moment, that's when I believed in the resurrection. That's when it clicked. Well, let's go back to Mary. Mary's firsts. She was the first one to the tomb. We're going to have a few more firsts here. Verse 11 and 12. She ran and told Peter and John. Now she's back at the tomb crying. She went in to look for herself. Inside are two angels, which didn't seem to rattle her. Uh, it's not clear from the text whether she recognized they were angels or not. They ask her why she's crying. She says almost the same thing she told Peter and John. They have taken Jesus away, but she doesn't know where the body is. And then verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now somebody might raise a hand of objection here and say, okay, wait a minute. She's looking for Jesus. She knows Jesus very well. She's looking right at Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him? Come on, that seems a little fishy to me. In reply, we would say, first of all, remember, she's not looking for a live Jesus. She's looking for dead Jesus. She's looking for a body lying down. Uh, I do not know where they have laid him. The last thing Mary expects to see is a live Jesus standing upright in front of her. Secondly, Jesus is not wearing the same clothes that he was the last time they saw him. Now, we, we've all got closets full of clothes at home. Uh, they didn't have closets full of clothes in the first century. Maybe if you're a royalty or if you're a wealthy merchant or something like that, but the common day laborer 
or, or the, the common person did not have uh, a closet full of clothes. Remember, Jesus' clothes were taken by the soldiers. They're gone. So whatever Jesus is wearing, it's not what he, they saw him last time in and probably what he usually wore. But thirdly, and most importantly, Jesus was not recognized after the resurrection until he allowed people to recognize him after the resurrection. We see examples of this in John 21, 4. We see an example of this uh, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. There was something different about Jesus in his post-resurrected state that did not allow people to immediately recognize him like they, um, like they did prior to the resurrection. So he seemed to have chosen when he wanted people to be able to recognize him. He asks Mary why she's crying and who she's looking for. She still doesn't know who it is. She assumes it's a gardener. We suppose that's probably a reasonable thing to think. They're standing in the garden. Why wouldn't there be a gardener? And then he reveals himself by calling her name Mary. And she responds with calling him teacher in Aramaic. And context tells us that she fell to her feet and laid hold of him in worship because the very next thing we read is him commanding her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's not because Jesus is, is not going to permit anyone to touch his resurrected body. We've got other synoptic gospel accounts that say the women were, were holding to his feet in worship. That's not it. And, and even later in this chapter, Jesus invites Thomas to touch him. So, so that's not it. When he says, do not cling to me, the message that he's communicating is, don't think that I'm here to stay. Don't think that, that I'm back and things are going to be just like they were before. Don't, don't think that I'm coming back like Lazarus came back. Lazarus came back and he resumed normal life. He resumed the relationships. He, he went ahead and lived a regular life. Jesus is saying, that's not what's happening here. You need to understand. Don't get too attached to my physical presence. I'm going to ascend to the Father. And this is the same message he instructs Mary to deliver to his disciples. He says, go tell my brothers, my brothers, Aren't these the same men that scattered like cockroaches when the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden? Yeah. They abandoned, they ran away in his time of need. Other than John, we're not told anyone else was at the cross. My brothers, you still belong to me. I have not cast you aside. I have not given up on you. You are my brothers. And now you're more than friends through the cross. You are now my brothers and then the message is, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So this is a message that displays the doctrine of adoption. Our old friend, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says adoption is the act of God's free grace by which we become his sons with all the rights and privileges of being his. Everyone who is justified before God and is received into the kingdom of God has the Spirit of Christ given to them. They are under God's fatherly care, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of being his 
Son, made heirs with all the covenant promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Romans 8 talks about this doctrine of adoption. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a son or daughter of God, and you have that sonship status, that adoptive status. This is why we call each other brothers and sisters as believers. We have that shared sonship status that cannot be revoked. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had sent all these things to her. And with that proclamation, we now have to add another first to Mary's resume. She was the first one to the tomb. And, and we've also seen she was the first to see Jesus after he rose from the grave. She was the first to hear Jesus. She was the first to talk with Jesus. She was the first to touch Jesus. And now she is to be the first messenger of Jesus' resurrection. That's a lot of firsts. Uh, John, John claimed first to believe, but Mary swept the rest of those gold medals. She, she had all those firsts, uh, those resurrection firsts. And I don't think it's an accident that Mary Magdalene was given the privilege of experiencing all these firsts. Remember, Mary's love and devotion to the Lord was total. She followed him with her whole life. She put Jesus first. She, she placed Jesus on the pedestal, the first place position in the podium of her life. Where does Jesus rank in your life? Where does he stand on the podium? Is he on the podium? What, what place does he hold? Now as believers, our first knee-jerk reaction is to say first, first place. Jesus is first place in my life. That's the right answer. But is he? Our sinful natures will always want to put ourselves in the first place. Our sinful natures will always push for a me first position on the podium. And then after me, we have family. Family first. You've probably heard that phrase. Family first. And then work. Or maybe, maybe it's work than family for some people. And then eating and sleeping. I mean, we've got to take care of our, ourselves, right? I mean, that, we've, we've got to do that. Working out, we, we, we've got to take care of and be good stewards of the body that God has given us. Uh, house and, and yard work, I mean, come on. We, we can't just let it fall apart. We, we've got to do those things. Then there's friends and hobbies and entertainment. I mean, we've got to have some downtime, right? We've got to keep our sanity. There's, there's got to be some of that. And we say he's first, but when life gets busy and when life is happening, there are so many things competing. There, just like there are so many athletes competing in the Olympics, there are so many things competing in our life for that first place podium and only one person or one thing can be there at any given time. It's easy for Jesus to kind of get bumped over to, to second or, or maybe even moved all the way over 
to third or even just kind of jostle and, and really fall off the podium altogether after we line everything else up. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think we, we say something like, well, yes, it's busy. Yeah, I didn't have time for, for this or that, but he is first place in my heart. And that's good. He should be. But how would that work if, if we tried that with our spouse? What, what if there was a week where you completely ignored your spouse? So you, you passed them in the, in the house, but you didn't make eye contact, you didn't speak to them, you didn't talk to them, you didn't do things with them. You made time for the rest of the family and for work and, and all these other things. And, and we watched some TV that week, but we didn't spend any time with our spouse. And the, your spouse came up to you at the end of the week and said, hey, what is happening? What is going on? And he said, no, 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 it's okay, honey, because you're first place in my heart. They would probably say something like, not good enough. I need you to be present in this relationship. I need to be uh, in your life. Mary Magdalene was a woman of exceptional faith. Is she not here for our instruction? Is this, is this record of Mary Magdalene and all the firsts that she racked up in this passage, are they not supposed to teach us something? No, they are. They are. Jesus wasn't just first place in Mary's heart. He was first place in her life. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. This wasn't just heart devotion. She ordered her life her actions around Christ. It wasn't just in the heart. Mary experienced these first and these moments of close communion and the relationship with Jesus in part because he was first in her heart and her life. I want to close with some encouragement. Uh, the post-exilic prophet Zechariah sent a word of God to the people of God after the exiles, so around 520 BC, he was a contemporary of Haggai. Uh, this is the time period where the people have returned from exile, they're back in Jerusalem, and things are okay. Uh, good, not great, uh, and really not that good. Uh, they had worked on the temple, but it wasn't finished. They were working, working on the wall, but that wasn't completely done yet either. And God seemed to be kind of absent, the glory days of Israel seem to be in the past. Not a whole lot to look forward to, or at least not in the present time. Uh, the book of Haggai sheds even more light on this, on the attitude. And the people at this time seem to have a me-first attitude. They were spending a lot of time and a lot of money on their own uh, interests and their own homes. Um, they were neglecting the temple. They were neglecting worship. And the overall attitude seemed to be, well, since uh, God's absent right now, this, this might be a good time to spend some time on me for a while. And that's where their, their time and money went, went to, is to themselves. And in the midst of that, Zechariah delivers this message. Therefore say to them, thus, says, or thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. 
get down off of the first place position on your podium, put me there where I belong, and I will return to you. I think it's difficult to see how we can expect God's blessing or any kind of closeness in our relationship with him if he's not on that first place podium position in our life. And the good news is this, we serve a God that is merciful and gracious. We serve a God that is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is committed to you by covenant promise. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. When we turn to him, this promise is valid for us. He will return to us. When you return to the Lord, he rejoices. When you return and, and, and place him at the center of your life, he forgives all spiritual apathy. Return to him. Let the grace and mercy of God call you back. Remember how much he has forgiven you. Let the love of God and his provision for you overtake you. Let, let the mercy and the grace of God awaken you from, from any sort of self-centeredness and me-first mindset. Let Jesus Christ's obedience and death and resurrection on your behalf propel you forward into greater love for God, a renewed thankfulness and zeal to follow him. We don't belong in the first place position at the podium of our life. Jesus Christ does. He deserves to be at the center of our heart and our life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to collectively pray together as your church. And all of us want the same thing. We want you to be first. We want you to be first in our hearts, in our minds, and in our life. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's been apathetic, if there's anyone here this morning that's kind of made excuses on, on why they've, they've dropped the relationship with their Savior, if there's anyone here this morning that, that wants to reconnect, that wants to renew their, their spiritual zeal for you, may this be the first day that we rejoice in putting our Savior in first place. Amen.